Investors Chronicle. Companies and Market Show, welcome back. It is Thursday, the 14th of July, around 10 a.m. as we record, a bit earlier today than normal. On the pod today, we've got Alex Newman, Mark Robinson, Arthur Sands, and Alex Hamer, all hosted as normal by Dan Jones. Hi, Dan. What's coming up today? Hi, John. We've got an interesting day today. We are speaking about Halion, the big listing uh, due to list on Monday. In the UK, uh, we're talking about our cover feature on psychedelics and how they could perhaps provide some medical or mental health breakthroughs and the company's looking to back that uh, niche. And then we are talking about the European energy crunch and what the possibility of the gas being turned off might mean for the likes of Germany and others. Lovely stuff. Thanks, Dan. Well, before we get there, a quick rundown from the week that has been... On Wednesday, the euro fell to parity with the US dollar for the first time in two decades. The global backdrop has seen investors rally to the perceived safety of the dollar, while the euro has kept slipping. The ECB were keen to point out it's the dollar which is strong rather than the euro being weak. The dollar has hit a 20-year high. Lots of Twitter versus Elon Musk news this week, with the company pressing ahead in suing the billionaire over his attempts to exit an agreed $44 billion takeover deal. Musk's exit strategy is a model of hypocrisy, the lawsuit said, accusing the billionaire of making, quote, bad faith arguments against Twitter and carrying out, quote, public and misleading attacks. A couple of companies' bits. Russian operating gold miner Petro Pavlovsk has had its shares suspended on Tuesday morning. It came after the company called in administrators after deciding there was no chance it would be able to find the $200 million needed to pay back Gazprom Bank, which demanded full loan repayment in April. Meanwhile, shares in fashion brand Jules dropped 20% on Monday after the company confirmed it had sought the help of debt advisors. Inflation updates from the US. Wednesday saw CPI hit 9.1% for June, which is plus 1.3% month on month. It's left the Fed under pressure to hike rates by a full percentage point after the 9.1% figure exceeded analyst expectations. Markets, FTSE 100 down just over a percent on the week so far. Similar story on Wall Street and in Europe at time of recording. Thank you, John. Yes, we are starting with Halion, the spin-off from GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, as I said earlier, it's due to list uh, on Monday. And this is, you know, this is the biggest uh, listing for about a decade since Glencore. The exact size of it we might come to in a minute. This is quite an interesting moment, I think, certainly for GlaxoSmithKline shareholders who will receive one share in Halion for every GSK share they own. The question being, obviously, what is the outlook for this company, this newly formed company? Uh, It's a consumer health business. There's a few of them around in the UK, in Europe, in the US. Not the most thrilling business, but that kind of, you know, hopefully reliable giant is perhaps what uh, we could do with a bit more of right now. Mark Robinson, our company's editor, and Alex Newman, our ideas editor, are here to discuss. Mark, um, what's your take on the company to begin with? And maybe if you could just talk about you know what it does and and we can go from there i think yeah okay it's um it's sort of you could say it's the consumer arm of uh, gsk at the moment features a lot of uh, extremely well-known brands in in the uk and abroad 
the likes of uh, Voltaren, Sensodyne and Panadol, which everyone out there will know. The rationale behind the deal is that allows GSK to um, purely focus on uh, biopharmaceuticals. I, I guess that in some respects reflects ongoing technological change as well and the fact that uh, it will need to uh, invest more time in driving that side of the business. The commercial rationale is possibly less clear given that the consumer side of the business is still performing. I know it's come under some criticism within these pages in the past by uh, uh, our colleague Julian Hoffman. But I think in some respects that's that's down to uh, operational or management issues. At any rate, uh, management said that over the next five years they expect to deliver uh, compound annual growth of uh, more than 5%, adjusted operating profit of more than 10%. Uh, given what's happened over the last couple of years or so, I think that's um, quite realistic in a sense. At the moment, the business operates over five categories. On the main, oral health accounts for 29% of revenue, pain relief, I panadol has mentioned before, about 23%, uh, digestive health, about a fifth, vitamins, minerals, and supplements, 15.7%, and respiratory health, about 12%. Um, looking at the operating profit from last time around, the consumer healthcare uh, segment of the business contributed about 28% of uh, operating profits, uh, which is uh, you know more than respectable, really. It's also the growth rate over, over the last financial year was uh, also impressive. I think one of the things to come out of this as well is the fact that you, you would get the impression that uh, OTC products are somehow sort of less profitable in a sense. And, of course, the margins are slightly lower over time. You look at um, products uh, such as Zavirax, which has been one of Pfizer's most profitable uh, products over the last couple of decades or so. And uh, Jennifer Johnson, in her article, pointed to the importance of drugs that go from prescription to over-the-counter uh, switching. Again, they can be extremely profitable. Uh, Viagra actually springs to mind um, <laughs> because that's recently um, become available over-the-counter, um, I'm told. And... Um, <laughs> The consumer healthcare business represents about 28% of operating profits that stand. Over the last financial year, that was up by 56% on a constant uh, exchange rate basis. Uh, the margin itself is about 23.3%. Now, that's a couple of points uh, down on vaccines and pharma, but uh, that's that's minimal, really. And it comes down to... What is the rationale behind it? I, I guess it's focusing, as I said before, just focusing on the the higher margin parts of the business. But as as with all these kinds of deals, they're not made in isolation, and uh, and the board members would have been taking advice from uh, their financial advisors there as well. And I've always thought that uh, there's incentives to for financial advisors to um, to split businesses and then sew them back together again. So. I, I, I don't know. I, I have no real opinion as to whether this will work out. I'm sure. I'm sure both arms, the company, will will do quite well. But um, you know, it, it generates cash flow, and I'm I'm just wondering if those cash flows are going to be consistent 
uh, as consistent from the vaccine and pharma parts of the business? Yeah, um, maybe we'll come back to the fundamentals in a moment. That that um, prescription to over-the-counter side of things is something that Helion seems to have been talking up its own ability to do that. He says it has a couple of more coming down the pipeline in well two or three years' time, which could add you know one or two percentage points to its four to six percentage point annual percentage annual growth. So you know it's really pinning some hope on that. But but as you kind of alluded to, the the corporate backstory is quite interesting here, isn't it? Because this is obviously a business for which GSK rejected a fifty billion pound bid from Unilever earlier this year. So, you know, now it's listing in some way the pressure is on management to, you know, justify their existence. The pressure is perhaps on GSK to show that, uh, you know, not that they'll have much of a hand in it anymore, but just to, to show that they made that the right decision to uh, reject Unilever's bid. Unilever itself obviously came in for a huge amount of criticism from its own shareholders for bidding for the uh, the company. Um, Alex, so how do you see the, the stakes there in terms of, you know, where where it might price and you know what it might say about the respective strategies of you know these consumer giants these pharma giants and and you know the potential for M&A down the line as well I suppose a lot to answer there I'm going to sit on the fence in terms of pricing evaluation because I'll inevitably be proven wrong in a couple of days time when it when it does list but I suppose one of the the big considerations regardless of how it prices immediately for for GSK shareholders is what's going to happen to the the shares in in the next few months, and there I think there's there's quite a big risk. So it's, it's so for each share, each one share of you know you, you own in GSK, you'll be getting one share in Halion. I, I think one of the, the the principal issues is is the large ov- overhang that um, that is is in the shares and the the selling pressure which might come. So Pfizer will own a thirty two percent stake in the business, and GSK says it. Plans to re- retain a fourteen percent stake as well, which it's going to sell off over over time. But that's that's quite a big stock overhang. So regardless of the valuation, the pricing, I don't think this is likely to be a company which we're going to, you know, which is going to pop, regardless of of how benign markets prove to be for its products. You know, saying saying that it is the side of the business which is perhaps has slightly more defensive qualities to it. So that's going to, uh, in theory, award it, uh, you know, a, a decent multiple. Though the, the multiples within the consumer f- consumer healthcare space are so wide. I think it's the, so looking at before um, we came on to talk, it's something between four to, between fourteen and thirty three times forward earnings, depending on which peer you look at. So it's quite it's quite a wide valuation. And yes, there are, you know, there are various outlooks you can put on on how Sensetine is going to do you know these these quite sort of stodgy brands and the pricing power some of these these products have which is re- pretty good and people don't tend to dispose of the need to brush their teeth in in recessions but at the same time as as uh, the, the piece that, that Mark alluded to that Jen wrote last month sort of previewing Halion's listing um consumer healthcare groups do struggle generally to maintain these even quite modest modest growth rates so 4% sales growth a year is kind of about what you would hope for. Okay, there's there's lots of efficiencies they can build in and, you know, pricing power, which means they can get slightly more in terms of return return on equity and net profit growth. But, 
yeah, this is this isn't a business which is going to shoot the lights out. And and so I, I suppose on valuation, I think it's I would expect it to um, though you know not want to place all my cards on the table. I'd respect I'd expect it to sit slightly below GSK's valuation because GSK basically the the rump business is going to be the more the, the higher risk reward trade off. So yeah, that's my um, very very hedged take on where the valuation is likely to sit and what investors can expect. I suppose the, the other thing with, you know, there are some headwinds here we've spoken about, obviously the, the share overhang, the debt, which, you know, they're really banking on strong cash flows continuing to, to help improve that situation. But to me, to I suppose, return to one of the many questions I threw at Alex all at once, you know, that there is that possibility of more M&A down the line, you know, a buyer coming in, Unilever, I would imagine, would not want to... Uh, uh, antagonize shareholders by coming back but i believe there was some talk of nestle and Reckitt making a joint having a, a look at some kind of joint bid a few months ago this does seem like something that could be in play as big as it will be you know it could be in play for one of these um giant companies down the line so so that might provide some support i suppose that possibility of of being taken out almost as quickly as it comes to market but we will see on that front Let's move on to our cover story this week, uh, going from over-the-counter drugs to something uh, a little more exotic. The piece is on psychedelics and the research being done in that area uh, with regard to their potential ability to help with mental health, to help with things like depression, anxiety, things like that. There are a small but increasing number of listed companies, uh, largely in the US, a couple in the UK too, who are looking at this kind of area. Arthur Sants has written the piece. Arthur, why don't we why don't we start? You know, this is obviously an area from an investment point of view that is quite unfamiliar to a lot of people. Why don't, why don't we start by sort of talking about the maybe the potential and what these companies are trying to do? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Basically, what they're trying to do is treat anxiety, depression, addiction, which I guess all sort of stem from a similar root cause, which is often a feeling of sort of dislocation and um, isolation. That sort of that has been on the rise in the last few decades. And um, there was that paper out of Princeton about rising deaths of despair in the US. And it's, um, that's often basically drug and alcohol overdoses. And then when I was looking at the, which I didn't actually realize beforehand, when I was looking at the sort of recent data for this article, I saw there's been a massive tick up in deaths of despair, even though it's been accelerating recently, the acceleration sped up again during the pandemic. And the traditional way to treat depression is with these SSRIs. So like the first one was invented by Eli Lilly in the 70s, and that was Prozac, and that's still a really, really popular one. There's Zoloft, which is um, uh, another really popular one, which is made by Pfizer. And like, like around 15% of Americans are taking these drugs and the market size for these antidepressants is like 15.6 billion at the moment and expected to rise to 21 billion in 2030. So it's basically the market for treating depression and anxiety is huge and it's growing. But if your market is growing massively and the more, more and more people are depressed, like how good are these drugs that you're giving them? Presumably not hugely effective. A potential solution to this problem um, are psychedelics. And the one that's getting the most research into it is psilocybin. And that's the molecule that you'll find in um, magic mushrooms, 
the company that I talk to most closely about this is a company called Cybin, which is um, listed in America last year. And basically what they've done is they've taken the sort of molecule from um, psilocybin that has these creates these psychedelic effects and they've isolated it and sort of trying to turn it into like a patented drug. And I talked to the CEO of um, Cybin, a guy called Doug Drysdale, and he explained how it worked to me. And basically the problem they have with just giving people a mushroom is that these trips take a really long time. Like it takes an hour for it to start and they can last for six hours. With LSD, the trips can last like 12 hours. So if you're trying to get treatment, these time periods are pretty unreasonable. Like if you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to go in and see my psychiatrist and then I'm going to sit with them for 12 hours while we <laughs> work through this. So the point of what they're trying to do with this molecule at Cybin is they're trying to make it sort of metabolize faster. So um, faster onset and then also sort of the trip to finish. Um, and when I say trip, I think that's just like the what they call them, psychedelic experience. And when the trip to finish faster, and then you do it, you do it in conjunction, you'll sit with like a therapist. And the therapist actually doesn't ask you loads of questions. It's often a case of sort of the patient closing their eyes, often listening to soothing music, wearing eye masks, and sort of trying to work their way through traumas or what's causing them anxiety. And um, a few people I talked to actually for this piece were palliative care doctors. I ended up sort of in a Canadian niche of the palliative care sector. So I talked to a lot of Canadian doctors about um, about this and how you can use these drugs to treat end of life, end of life anxiety, people that have terminal illnesses. They found it to be pretty, pretty successful. I talked to one Canadian doctor who um, said a few of his patients sort of were asked for um, magic mushrooms instead of just like, I think to quote him, um, a bucket load of codeine, which um, probably seems, that doesn't seem great. So I think, um, so you sort of sit there with your, for a while, think about your sort of traumas or what's causing you the anxiety and then the um, psychiatrist with you will be there if you have any questions or if you sort of start becoming distressed because these trips aren't just like fun. They're, patients go through a real journey um, and sort of tackle things that causing them real anxiety, which probably doesn't feel great in the moment, but can sort of bring some peace afterwards. I think one of the doctors I talked to in Canada described it as, um, Depressions often, or like anxiety, you're often sort of ruminating thoughts and you get sort of stuck in a rut. And the nice description um, I was given of how these drugs work is that sort of there's a new layer of fresh snow over those ruts and then you can sort of find your new path again. So there's been a bit of a renaissance, yeah, in these drugs in the recent history. And like there was, there was a lot of research into them in the 1960s and 1970s. And then there was the war on drugs and Nancy Reagan, just say no, and they were worried that sort of these people would take too many, take these drugs and not want to go fight in Vietnam, not be good little capitalists. So um, they um, banned them all. But it's been really picking up again this year, the research into them. And that's why sort of these companies, as I mentioned, Cybin, there's another one called Compass Pathways, um, and another like Atai Life Sciences, who've all listed recently in the US, have started popping up again. But they're still quite far away from producing any revenues. I think most of them sort of predicted to start producing revenues in 2025 or 2026, which does make the sort of valuation case quite tricky because you're definitely, there's a lot of finger in the wind stuff. But from all the sort of, sort of scientific community, there are really strong use cases for these drugs has been, and the research into them is picking up a lot and they're seeing a lot of really positive um, results. So it might be a case of sort of, it, it, I think it will be an important part of 
psychiatric treatment and treating depression and treating anxiety and it's clearly becoming a real issue in our society maybe picking the winners right now in this market is going to be tricky but if you believe in it and i feel like i do from the research i did in the piece then there might be there's probably going to be some value and maybe i suppose there are also perhaps comparisons with the uh the uh cannabis market as well in the us which again you know it attracts a lot of excitement some of these niche sectors that excitement has come off the boil as it has everywhere this year but maybe that that's you know helpful in a way you know it allows people to actually focus on what might happen down the line rather than the excessive valuations of the near term perhaps that is true i think one of the issues possibly is which and one of the issues i think they found in the cannabis sector is that it's been illegal for it was illegal for such a long time that the people that were selling cannabis illegally got really good at selling cannabis illegally so you could buy illegal cannabis cheaper than you could buy the legal version so it was difficult for the sort of legal companies to compete with people who've been doing it for years and didn't have to pay any taxes so it's a lot cheaper for them to do it and i think maybe that's possibly an issue in this space as well in the sense that these companies create these molecules because they need to have something that they can patent you can't patent a mushroom and you can't patent lsd which was discovered by albert hoffman in the 30s so they're sort of creating problems that they need to solve so they can create these molecules so they can patent them to make loads of money. Then you talk to people as, um, I was listening to Paul Stamets, who's um, a mycologist in Canada who like loves mushrooms, knows everything about mushrooms. And he doesn't think that these companies are actually, their products are going to help anyone more than the mushrooms themselves. They just want to be able to patent these molecules so that they can make a lot of money. So I guess the point I'm making about this equivalent to the uh, cannabis market is that if this stuff starts working and all this scientific research comes out saying this stuff works, what stops people from just like growing their own mushrooms and taking them or like growing and all there's or maybe that an industry will pop up. You can already go to Jamaica and go to a, like a psychiatric retreat where ma magic mushrooms are illegal, take them with guidance. And there are places where you can do this, maybe things like that pop up in Oregon and maybe actually it becomes less about one company owning a patent to a magic mo a ma magic molecule like Eli Lilly did with Prozac and it becomes more of a sort of case of people using, I don't know, a more sort of democratized way of treating mental health issues. Maybe that's better, maybe bad from an investor who's looking for one company to make you a, a ton of cash. I suppose that's also, it's partly, you know, back to the, in a way, the generics versus, um, uh, you know, brand, uh, products that might be where the marketing comes in down the line to convince people that they want the, uh, the you know, the big brand psychedelic, the big brand uh, magic mushroom, if you will. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting area and uh, one that, you know, I think high growth investors might uh, be interested in keeping, keeping tabs on. These terrible puns are coming out all the time now. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, Arthur. It's very interesting. As I say, that is the cover feature this week. Uh, there's lots more information on there, lots of discussion of these companies and their fundamentals and lots of interesting historical information there as well. I, uh, I learned a lot reading it uh, and uh, hopefully our listeners will too. We move on though to the reality, the present day reality and the rather serious um, issue of uh, energy security. This obviously is on the back of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and now the prospect of gas supplies to Europe being cut off. They are going to be cut off in the short term, possibly for a little bit longer, depending on how the quote-unquote maintenance of the Nord Stream pipeline goes. And this is starting to be 
recognised, I think, as a real risk for, for European society later this year as we head into winter. Alex Hamer, our news editor, wrote about this uh, last week. A big issue for, for Europe, for European manufacturers, for, for everyone, possibly, Alex. Yeah, I mean, to paraphrase to Mick Jagger um, and to touch on the last subject a bit, it's the, it's the gas, gas, gas. The Nord Stream 1 pipeline is off um, at the moment, um, has been all week and will be for another few days, hopefully. Um, it'll come back um, on. The, it, it's, it's a tricky situation. I think um, watching Germany struggle with it has been um, interesting, if a bit scary. Um, they've started putting backup measures in place if the Russians don't increase um, gas exports. Um, basically, if they don't turn Nord Stream 1 back on. Um, so yesterday, um, the government has just said that they've they've pushed back um, limits to coal and fuel oil power plants operating. Um, so if gas storage levels are quite low as we get into winter, um, we'll get more burning of, of coal and fuel oil um, and potentially even wood. Um, but that's more on a... On a uh, a per house um, basis. Um, so really reaching back, I guess, in terms of energy um, technologies. Um, and obviously there's a massive geopolitical element to this, um, but a key part that's actually going in Germany and, and other European countries' favour is that Canada, helpfully, um, where magic mushrooms are legal or soon to be legal or effectively legal, um, as per the last chat, um, they will send back a critical part for Nord Stream 1, um, which has caused a lot of criticism because it's seen to be supporting the Russians um, and helping them out. But effectively, Canada sending back a turbine part is going to help keep the lights on in Europe. Um, and so far, the, the, the impact's already being felt in the futures market. Um, December, power prices have, have spiked recently. Um as well. So I think in the short term for investors, um, gas prices are still strong. Um, we've seen some, some more deals coming through this week to try and take advantage of that. Um, for consumers, it's more bad news, unfortunately. I suppose the other, um, issue is how it, the, you know, in these scenarios and from what I've seen, the scenario analysis in Germany, such a wide range, even among, you know, the regulators in terms of if Russia's, you know, if, uh, the gas does stop there, you know, I think that that's also something saying the, the German, uh, regulator said in six of the seven scenarios, they, you know, they absolutely do not have enough gas. It will run out. And then someone else published a thing a day later saying actually in 80% of scenarios, there'll be no physical scarcity. But you can see, I think, that, that politicians are getting worried. I think uh, yesterday there was uh, just a piece in the FT talking about the European Commission's uh, gas demand reduction plan draft, which is you know talking about some of these things which unfortunately have become more common, basic things such as turning down the heating, compensating industries for curbing gas use. So, you know, if you're a manufacturer, if you're a business in Europe, and, you know, okay, you might have an incentive to curb that use but at the same time you are to be you're going to be needing that in order to remain a going concern so it could be a, a really serious uh problem i guess we just don't know yet and hopefully hopefully then there'll be enough ducks in a row ahead of time yeah and and i think one one um 
analyst that I spoke to um, or who, who put out a note at the end of last week phrased this winter as, as a time when we could possibly muddle through um, in terms of keeping the lights on, um, which is a which is a fairly cute phrase for for the for the the risk there of of not being able to keep the lights on and I guess not muddling through. Um, but I think the demands destruction part of it is really important. I mean, you know, supply has obviously not you know is not working out. I think even even on the oil side, which is much less less critical in in Europe right now, um, the thresholds for which um, I think it could be Germany or it could be a broader EU group, um, had they'd agreed to buy, only buy a certain amount of Russian oil and tailing off, and they'd blown through those those um, self-imposed limitations already. So like the 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 supply is is, is so critical that demand destruction has started and and will probably continue as well um as we go and i mean you know the the our, our investors chronicle has been full of stories about you know in construction in manufacturing um retailers um all the in between fun stuff like you know filling up trucks with <laughs> with petrol and diesel um and all those little hits um it does kind of come back to um this reliance um, on Russian oil and gas. And I think, you know, ideas about putting a, a price cap in are, are interesting, but it almost, it, 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 you know, the horse has bolted. Um, and I think trying to impose new limits on, on a market that is reacting to the, the hardcore reality of there not being enough gas and oil um, on the continent um, is is not going to work. Price capping seems insane. So you haven't got very much oil and gas coming. So you put a price. The point of prices going up is to limit, <laughs> is to lower demand for something that you're short of. So then price capping it seems like an insane way to respond to that. Yeah, I mean it's the same. It's the same kind of um, you know stuff that you you learn in in economic class in uni or even high school where you know to help people with with petrol prices don't cut the tax and tr- and increase demand you <laughs> give give them money elsewhere in their life to cover the cost that they might have to spend on higher gas prices but actively encouraging them to spend money on petrol when you haven't got very much of it seems mental yeah um yeah so i think it's 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 this it's quite easy to kind of point and say these these policies are, are not going to work um but it's yeah. It's clear that that um, politicians are floundering. Yeah, I think that you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place to an extent, aren't For they? Sure, I mean, yeah. Obviously, there are all these questions of energy mix, and you know, Germany's still rejecting nuclear and turning on the uh, coal power plants back on. But but ultimately, as you say, those are kind of medium term issues anyway. That the short term is is what it is. Unfortunately, is it is it fair to say the UK is not? quite as badly affected by this i mean i know the uk does export gas to europe right now we don't have much storage but we do have a decent supply at the moment um yeah is that a fair assessment yeah and and much less exposed to russian gas um compared to germany for example um and there there's a system through which um the uk is both can be both importer and exporter of gas um to europe through the 
um, and, and power largely um, through the interconnector system. Um, but we've kind of, we dodged a bullet last week when the Norwegian, um, on one of the big Norwegian oil fields and gas fields, um, the government managed to stop a strike, which would have made things a bit worse. Um, so the UK is a little bit insulated, um, partly because of um, domestic supply. But I think this idea of trying to, you know, establish domestic supply security or security of supply um, is, you know, it it does make sense, of course, because if we, if it's, you know, on, you know, in UK, North Sea, um, we should have dibs on it. But I mean, the price isn't that different to what you're paying um, across the channel. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of actually having gas in the pipes, um, definitely better off than, than Germany. I think, I think the, um, it's, it's almost got lost in the last couple of weeks of, um, of political high drama, but I mean, the, the, um, the, the news on where the, where the energy, household energy costs are going to go to from October, I just, I, I stunned me this week. So, I mean, even though we're, it's not quite as acute, obviously, as, as um, you know, being reliant reliant on a pipeline to Russia, I think energy prices for households projected to go up another sixty five percent in October. So if you an, an ordinary household is probably paying about one hundred and fifty pound, if you're paying one hundred fifty pound a month, that's going to be up to two hundred and fifty pounds by October, and then and that's that's a that's a high conviction prediction from the energy analysts who have been following this and calling it quite well. And then in January it's going to jump again. So I mean, the, I, I think this is the possibly underappreciated threat to, you know, even greater threat to discretionary spending and and industry as well, because you know energy prices are sort of they're out of control, and it's not really clear how you know the the sort of solutions that people are talking about turning rough um the the rough uh, storage facilities back online if that's going to that's going to fix it in the near near term but um yeah I th- I th- i'm pretty worried by it to be honest well i think there are any number of um ripple effects from the increase in hub prices around the world is just to give you one example as well is that even if you're even if you're a primary producer and you manage to get hold of some uh, fertilizer at the end of uh, autumn you're going to be paying a much higher price for nitrate based fertilizers because of the increase in gas prices it's it's already up like fourfold isn't it i think exactly year, and then you've got the price of diesel on top of that transporting farming goods it's not really difficult to see why we're going through this in, inflationary uh, st- stage at the moment and even though the price of uh, crude oil has uh, fallen uh, over the last three weeks or so um, I think these problems will 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 actually um, will worsen during the the winter months. I think the full impact of inflation I don't think we're going to get until the first quarter of next year. It's it's uh, interesting comparing that with the the forecast of inflation peaking in spring um, <laughs> next year, which is you know paints a pretty dire picture. But even that, if we're coming into a a spring where, as you say, UK consumers are are spending um, you know, over three and a half grand a year on on power or on an annual mm. basis, and then that goes up again. You know, um, yeah. so inflation peaks then because demand, aggregate demand, is so destroyed in the economy. I don't know if that's what the economists 
predictions are. <laughs> well, this, this is uh, rosy. I mean, without, without getting overtly political about this as well, this is uh, again a demonstration of um, when you try and uh, manipulate markets externally, uh, leaving aside the uh, the war in Ukraine at the moment. You've got other examples of this uh, in uh, the Netherlands and Sri Lanka where government um, invoked agricultural policy um, almost overnight or relatively speaking overnight. And you're seeing now um, uh, physical deficits uh, in agri agricultural product. Dutch farmers are out in the street because it looks like their livelihoods are just being sort of taken from underneath them. Uh, you're going to find a lot of more, a lot more of this as well. But I, I don't want to uh, get into the rights and wrongs of environmental policy. And so, what's uh, happened exactly there? If they, what's well, what's the, well the subsidies they, that it's been going on for a little while now, and it's part of um, EU policy. Um, it's not a diktat yet, but it's um, uh, of course the the Dutch are um, the Dutch are ahead of the field in this. It's just a question they can try and reduce the amount of nitrates that go into their soil by about half by the end of this decade. And, and given the Netherlands is the second largest um, agricultural exporter in the world, you know, it's a huge, it's a huge sector within that economy. And with this government policy, um, if it goes unrestricted, will lead to farmers just leaving the land um, and a very high proportion of farmers. They've tried the same thing in, in Sri Lanka as well. They, wanted to increase their um, their sort of national ESG uh, scores there. But all it's done is uh, led to massive spikes in, in food prices. And, of course, this has been ex exacerbated by what's going on in Ukraine too. But I've, you know, I I, I just think the government, governments need to be very uh, careful when they intervene in markets. I mean, it's also intervening in, in the soil. You can't just flick a switch and make the soil healthy enough again to support... Um, crops and, and, and feed without that kind of, you know, fertiliser being needed. I tell you, it looks uh, Anglo-Americans' uh, purchase of serious minerals is looking is pretty good now. That's all, Mark. <laughs> or the two marks. Well, on that note, uh, I think it's fair to say, given all these issues we've raised, that energy policy, for better, for worse, is, you know, going to be a, a big feature um, of the rest of the year. And... Um, as it has been for the last six, 12 months too. So we will see how that plays out and we will keep an eye on it and keep reporting on it in, in our pages as well. But that is all we have time for today. So thank you to everyone for taking part. Thank you to both Alex's, to Mark and to Arthur and to John. And thank you to you for listening. We will speak to you next week on the next Companies and Markets show. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.